0: co-host Tracy Wilson Rossman. And today we have a guest that I am incredibly excited about. Her name is Jenny Fielding. And Jenny Fielding is a pre-seed investor and entrepreneur. She's a valuable asset to any entrepreneurial endeavor. As co-founder and managing partner at Everywhere Ventures, she's invested in over 260 startups, demonstrating her keen eye for potential Her experiences as Managing Director at Techstars and BBC Worldwide has honed her skills in fostering innovation and growth, and as an adjunct professor at Columbia University and Cornell Tech, she imparts her knowledge to future founders, further enriching the startup ecosystem. Her background in law and business, combined with her entrepreneurial spirit, makes her a unique and invaluable resource in the startup landscape. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. We're really excited to dive into the conversation today, um, but I think you have a really varied and, and fantastic background. And so I would love to start out by talking a little bit about your background and your transition from a lawyer to an entrepreneur and really what how all of that led you to becoming a VC.
1: Yeah. So like many um, investors, I think I've I've... Um, Had a few pivots in my career and, you know, started down a journey um, that has been kind of a a cool, windy road. So as you mentioned, I went to law school and um, had a brief career practicing. I spent some time in banking. Um, But my model growing up was really my family. Both my parents worked for themselves. Um, And so somehow deep down, I kind of fancied myself um, an entrepreneur, but I was working at big companies. Um, And so at some point I I woke up and I found myself working at J.P. Morgan. And, um, you know, my idea of myself was very different than my reality. Right. Pretty uh, corporate. um, And so. While I was there, I ended up starting a company. So nights and weekends um, ended up working on um, a tech idea with some folks um, that I had met, and you know had this real vision of where the future was going in terms of mobile technology. And my you know my nights and weekends turned into my my full time gig, and that's been a pattern for me. Um, both getting into entrepreneurship and um, into investing as well.
0: I love that idea of kind of you you have an idea, right? And you start slowly working on it in nights and weekends. And, And I've had that experience, too, where it kind of slowly starts to take over everything else. And that's when you realize, like, okay, this is the new path I'm pursuing I think a lot of people think um, as an entrepreneur, right, you just open your eyes one day and think I'm going to start a business today. But it's a much more gradual process. Um, And so I, I love your explanation of that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the truth is, I'm what you would call an empath founder. So I started my company not to start a startup, but to solve a problem that I saw in the world that I personally was facing. Right. So at the time, mm-hmm. it had to do with mobile technology and making international calls. And I was just really trying to solve a problem for myself. And as I kind of look deeper into the problem, realized like, oh, wow, this is actually um, something that other people Uh, experience as well. And potentially, you know, there's a company here. So it really started from a personal pain point.
2: Well, we know that a lot of good companies do start that way, um, kind of accidentally on purpose in a a way. Um, What's really interesting of the many things that's interesting about you is your portfolio is impressively and interestingly diverse. It's ranging from fintech to health tech. First of all, you know, a lot of VCs uh, and funds have, you know, an investment thesis. Um, so how are you evaluating these opportunities in these var- various sectors and what do they need to have in common to pique your interest?
1: Yeah, so um, our fund one and fund two were really generalist funds. Um, there were some things that um, I like to invest in. There are some things that my co-founders like to invest in. And, you know, we've got kind of an army of, um, of LPs who are founders who send us interesting deals. And so we're we're very generalist. And as we went out to raise fund three, we looked across our portfolio, which at that point was about, you know, over 200 companies. And we said, okay, like where are the outliers coming from? And where do we think directionally the world is going? And so with that, you know, we looked, we, we you know, we were data driven and we looked at our portfolio and saw, you know, real bright spots coming out of what we call the table stakes economy. So what is it you actually need to live? Um, and we distilled that down to kind of, three verticals, money, health, and work. Um, And so that's really, you know, more of our focus now going forward. Um, And those also happen to be areas that I personally have, um, you know, experience with and a passion for. Um, Started investing in fintech in about 2015 been involved in healthcare for many years. And, you know, these are um, big categories that we think are, you know, driving, you know, huge change in our society and can impact lives. And so, you know, we're really excited to be doubling down on fund three into these areas.
2: So you've been a first check for over 200 startups and, you know, putting that leap of faith into um, a founding team or a founder, what is that What convinces you to take that leap of faith? Um, What are you looking for in a founding team um, that would set them apart?
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, you know, we're early stage investors, first check. And so um, there's not a lot of uh, metrics or data. Um, You know, the products we know will, will change and pivot. Um, And so we're really looking at the characteristics of the, the founding team. And I'd say we focus on, you know, three fundamental things that we see. One is a vision of a future that potentially doesn't exist. So what I mean by that is um, we're not exactly looking for founders who are solving problems today, but where directionally do we think the world is going and how are they um, building products and solutions that are kind of taking us into that that um, new era? And it, that's a very hard proposition, right, because you're trying to convince someone to invest in you for a problem that may not, you know, be here, um, but it's something that's coming down down the pipe. So we're really excited for founders who can tell that story, that have that narrative around that vision. Um, I'd say the second area is really the resilient founder. You know, we're seeing right now in the tech downturn, you know, the the founding um, archetypes that can get through these hard times and the ones that really can. So, you know, that resilient um, ethos where they're going to overcome and, you know, deal with uh, challenging issues as they come up, um, which sounds easier than it actually is, right? I'm a multi-time founder. I've been in position of not being able to make payroll, of having, you know, our biggest uh, customer pull out, all these types of things. And so how you deal with those challenges um, and how resilient you are, um, I think is, is a key characteristic that we look for. And then the last one is really this idea of being open to data. So um, as founders, especially as empath founders, we're very focused on you know, solving this problem that could be so personal and acute, and it can be very emotional. But we're really looking for founders that um, are responsive to feedback, right? And so the feedback is the data, right? Do the customers want this? Is this what the market actually wants? Not, you know, is this how you want to see, you know, the world? Like, that's a very important part of the founding journey. But being quick to respond, which will lead to product iterations, pivots potentially, um, direction of the business is super important. So I'd say those are the kind of three factors um, that we focus on.
0: I think those are really spot on. You know, obviously, anyone that's been an entrepreneur has experienced the the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And no matter how resilient you think you are, you're tested in, in this journey. And uh, I think that the, the kind of open to data, almost the, the coachability piece of it, right, is that someone that's willing to look at the market and make a determination about um, how they can change things or iterate and that they're not tied to a single solitary way of kind of solving this problem is really great. I would, I'm just curious about some red flags that might maybe deter you from investing in what would be otherwise considered a promising startup.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny timing. So um, today, I actually uh, tweeted about a situation where I met a founder. Um, I think the company is super interesting. Um, the vision is is there, but quite frankly, I just didn't like the founder. I um, found him to be, you know, somewhat arrogant, maybe a little entitled, and so it's a real dilemma as an investor when you see something that you think is quite promising. Um, even founder characteristics that you think can be successful, but you don't necessarily, you know, uh, jive with them. So, you know, I guess I have to say that, you know, entitlement and, and arrogance are, um, you know, can, can be flags for me, mostly because it's hard for me to work with those people. And at the early stage, you know, it's a relationship where you want to be able to unlock something. So my caveat is... Um, those are red flags for me but they're not necessarily um, meaning that I don't think the company will be successful it's more about can I contribute something to this relationship
0: right and really looking at it like it's a marriage because because it is you know you're potentially spending the next however many years kind of in the trenches with this person and so I think that's a really interesting way to look at it, right? Because I think that when people go out to raise money, they really think of just the clear uh, data points and characteristics that they need to have to be successful. And I think it goes both ways. For a founder, it's really important to invest in the relationship with your investor and make sure that they are somebody that you want to spend a lot of time with, that you share a vision um, because you are essentially building a relationship for the long term with these people and they can have a significant impact on your company. Correct. I, I saw
2: that tweet this morning. I did send an <laughs> answer over to you. So we'll see what you think about that. Um, but, um, you know, I, I find I found that question um, very telling about about you um, and really willing to put yourself out there uh, with that to like, look at both sides. Um, yeah, I want mean, an
1: easy, I think people are, you know, very much on the surface. Well, why work with anyone you don't like? Okay. Like that's a very, um, good way to live your life. I am also it, responsible for other people's capital, where my job is to maximize our outcome. And so the line is much more nuanced than people are, you know, giving credit for. And so, you know, I think it, it's just something I think about quite a bit.
2: Right. The responsibility. It's not like you are just an individual angel investor, or early, really, really early yeah. investor where, you know, it is your your own money. Um Correct. and I, Correct. I just I found that very refreshing for somebody to be transparent in that way. I mean it just it it says a lot about you know your thought process um but also giving kind of a an insight for you know a founder to be thinking about um you know how they present and what they're thinking about and also you know, how they might be working with a VC. So, well, we're, we're going to pivot a little bit into, you know, you've been in the trenches um, twice um, and you've, you've faced these challenges of building products and teams. So from those experiences and, and certainly from the group of people that you've assembled for these funds, you, um, How are your experiences and their experiencing informing your approach as an investor and an advisor?
1: Yeah, so I started my first company in 2007 um, in New York City, which, you know, now is second largest tech ecosystem in the world. And back then, um, there really wasn't much going on. Um, Most of the people in my community were not building startups. They were, you know, working at, at large corporates or law firms, et cetera. And, um, you know, it just wasn't a thriving ecosystem. So that's all to say that, you know, a lot has changed. Um, And I think, you know, all the resources that are now available to founders, whether it's, um, you know, programs or mentors or support or sponsors or all these things just weren't really available. And so I've seen how impactful having the right um, influences, advisors, community resources, you know, can really Move move the company along. So, um, you know, I was pretty lonely as a founder. I made a lot of mistakes because I didn't have this community. And so, I've really focused my investing career in you know how do I create this um, environment that is more than capital um, and is really kind of focused on what are the gaps in um, you know the company and what you know can me as an investor or part of the community do to, to fill it. Um, so really, the challenges for me as a founder was, I mean, I had a lot of them, but um, I really, you know, I didn't necessarily have the right co-founders, I didn't have the right um, early founding team and some of those things. So I spend a lot of time coaching founders on setting their company up for success um, from that kind of point of view. <laughs>
0: You know, I so I started a company uh, four years ago and uh, my company is in the process of being acquired right now. And so I think that what you're saying about the people they surround them with and advisors and advice, it resonates now with me more than ever before, because in those moments of the early days, right, when you're you're just trying to think of how to get to the next milestone and sometimes you're fundraising and for a founder right fundraising can be difficult and sometimes you just want to get it over with or get it done and you bring people to invest in the company and you think right I've got the money I can do what I have to do and you don't necessarily think of some of the longer term consequences and I want to talk a little bit about cap tables in in particular because um in the process now of being acquired, I'm very fortunate that I feel that my cap table is very solid. I don't have any issues, but truly in this process has made me realize if there were some some of the things that I could have done in the past, right? Mistakes I almost made, how dire they would be in this moment. And I think that founders in the beginning of the journey, they don't always think about how the decisions that they make today will truly really impact them when they are getting acquired or when they are kind of selling their company or, or having any type of liquidity event. And so for you, obviously, you've been on the side of entrepreneur and investor. Um, really quickly, anyone who doesn't know what a cap table is, it, it's like a map for who owns what in a startup. So it tracks kind of the shares issued, ownership percentages and equity transactions. And it really serves as a tool for, for making informed decisions on fundraising employee stock options and and potential exits and it's super important and so jenny i i would love to to know what do you recommend to do to keep your cap table ready for future rounds as as these people are kind of going out for funding in the early days and they're you know transitioning from friends and family to seed rounds and beyond and the ones that are considering uh, partnering with an incubator or a venture studio. Can we talk about the impact that that can have on the cap table and and ultimately the impact it can have on you as a founder when you do get to that point of an exit?
1: Yes. Well, I love this topic. (laughs) I'm really (laughs) geeky. And, um, you know, this is something that, you know, I definitely love to unpack and really, Um, I just see so many messy cap tables come my way. And as you said, um, there's long-term implications, even beyond, you know, me and my decision whether I'm going to invest. But, you know, as you're going through an exit, which um, congratulations, by the way, that's that's not nothing so amazing. Um, Yeah, like what you do at the beginning really sets you up for success or not. So I spend a lot of time just working with founders, helping, you know, um, helping to kind of share my experiences and my knowledge on, on these cap tables. And so you gave like a great definition of what, you know, the cap table, you know, really is and its purpose. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about, you know, why it's important to, to stay, stay clean and then kind of like how to do it. So, you know, the biggest um, mistake we see on a cap table is this idea of like dead weight. And so that is, you um, in many cases, where um, equity has been taken or exchanged, um, but the value has not really been there. So, an example is um, an early stage uh, founder or employee in the company who is given equity. Um, potentially, that equity wasn't on a vesting schedule, and, um, and now that person has left. And meanwhile, they've taken a huge chunk of the cap table, right? So we call that dead weight. And, you know, that can come in many forms, whether that's an investor, a former employee, all these types of of things. And so basically, part of your company has been taken, but you haven't gotten the value in return. Um, And so that's, I'd say, like one of the most common things that we see. And so whether it was a studio, an accelerator, a former employee, Um, a a former co-founder who left, Um, there's ways early on to set yourself up for more success, whether that's around vesting or milestones or, or all these things. But as a founder, you really have to kind of balance that line of giving equity because that's the currency you have. You don't really have capital, you know, to 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 pay um, and protecting that equity as if, you know, it's gold. So you have to really um, walk that balance. And unfortunately, we just see all too often founders who's given away too much equity at the beginning, and that really will have an impact on many downstream decisions, including raising follow-on capital.
0: Absolutely. And I think for a founder, sometimes, you know, when you don't have capital in the early days and all you have to give is equity, it kind of... it it feels like equity comes cheap to you at that point right because you have an abundance of that and you have and you don't have anything else and so it's easy to say oh i want this advisor or i really want to hire this person and bring them on and let me give them this much and at the end of the of the day when you are going through that acquisition boy do you wish you didn't do that
1: it, it's i, I mean know. The advisors one is is a really important one. I can't tell you how many people I've seen with advisors that have, you know, five to 10 percent of the cap table um, and potentially are no longer involved in the company. Right. And so, yeah, they helped out for a few months and, and now they're gone because they weren't put on a proper vesting schedule or they were somehow convinced that they were deserving of that. Um, that huge chunk of equity, which really, you know, if you're not full time involved in the company, you're not. And so we often see this in, um, we'll call them tier two tech markets, where there's kind of less um, capital readily available. And so founders, um, you know, have to, you know, use resources like advisors, you know, to supplement um, for, for, you know, for their cash. and, And that
2: can be really hard. Jenny, well, I have two questions. First, can you talk a little bit about a vesting schedule? Because I think this gets lost. Everybody thinks, "Oh, I'm just going to get this right away." You know, as an advisor, um, so let's let's make sure everybody understands the importance of a vesting schedule and why it should be in there.
1: Yeah. So every company that sets up, assuming that you're going to have you know multiple people who's, who set up the company, um, those founding teams should all be put on a vesting schedule. And the traditional one for an early stage company is what's called a four-year vest and a one-year cliff, meaning that your equity will vest, you know, equally over four years. So it will, um, you know, vest in monthly installments. But for that first year, um, there'll be this thing called a cliff. So if, you know, you leave or things don't work out within that first year, um, you will not receive any equity. And then after that, um, in kind of monthly installments. And why this is so critical is, you know, we just don't know what's going to happen to the company, what's going to happen to those co-founders. So, um, you know, I had a company and one of my co-founders didn't work out. And so, you know, because of that vesting schedule, we were able to kind of extract that person in, you know, the least, um, harmfully impactful way to, to our cap table. Um, and with advisors as well, So oftentimes, you know, there's a two or three year vesting schedule for any advisor shares, um, meaning that the advisor might provide a ton of value in the first six months and then maybe they go off to do other things. Maybe you outgrow them. And so the ability to claw back that equity um, or not give it out in the first place is just so critical. And I find many, many founders set up their company, but they don't necessarily do it with a lawyer or with someone who's giving them these tools to make it effective. And so unfortunately, once that equity is given and it's not on a schedule, you know, it's gone. Yeah.
0: There's something called a founder advisor standard template that I used. um, And I would recommend it to any founders that are getting started because I think, you know, aside from giving the equity right away to advisors, right, it's There's a lot, I think, uh, to be said about getting on the same page and understanding how much time they're going to contribute. And that template itself tiers um, the amount of equity they get based off of the amount of involvement they'll have. And it makes, to me, the deliverables really clear for the advisor. They know exactly what they're committing to kind of per month. And they understand that they're being compensated with an equity amount that is commiserate with the amount of time and energy they're committing. And then the uh, scale of equity is also um, impacted by the stage of the company, right? So in the very early days, they come on and they're doing all these things for you, it might be a little bit higher. And in the later days, it's less. So um, I would recommend that template. I think it's really good because if nothing else, Um, it's a really clean way for you to get on the same page with your advisors. Um, You can build in a vesting schedule and the amounts that are kind of pre- added in there for the equity are, are reasonable. So, you know, if someone's trying to ask for something crazy, like 5% to be an advisor, it's like, this is, you're off the map here. So I think that that's a great template. I don't know if you've seen founders use that in the
1: past, Jenny, but it's yeah, very but, helpful to me. Yeah, really good. I mean, I'm going to say something slightly controversial, but it's something that I believe to be true. And that is the vast majority of advisors should be investors. Um, yes. There are other cases that, um, you know, where the advisor, you know, doesn't necessarily have the financial means. And um, in those cases, it, it definitely can make sense. But in my experience, having invested in hundreds of companies, um, if this person is so committed and so excited about the company, they should be on your cap table as an investor as well. Um, and most of these advisors, right, these are people that you're going to that are further in their career, that have a lot of experience, um, and so they should have some skin in the game. Now, of course, there are you know many examples where that's not financially viable, but if that is not the case and this person is not investing, I would think twice about that. So that's my own personal opinion.
2: Agreed. Shelly, I want to ask one other question. Can you clean up a cap table, Jenny? Can you, I mean, this is a real, I, I actually don't know this, the answer to this question. So you have uh, a, an ex-founder, um, an employee, and now they're no longer part of the business. Can, and, you know, you didn't do the whole vesting schedule. So they own part of the company. Is, do you buy them out? Is that one way of resolving it?
1: Yes, 100%. Yes, you can clean up your cap table. Um, So, you know, to your point, yes, you as the founder can can buy them out. Again, that's a negotiation between them, um, between the parties. Um, More likely what happens is that an investor comes in and does you know a secondary transaction so a later stage investor would come in and said you know we'd want to i'm going through one of these right now with um with a company that i invested in where um early uh you know the cap table was a little bit messy we tried to clean it up a bit and there were still these kind of small shareholders um that had equity so now that a new um round is coming in, they're doing a secondary transaction and kind of taking out all of those investors. Now, again, it's a negotiation um, in terms of getting them off the cap table. But, um, you know, if there's been a valuation jump, if the company is, you know, doing well and there's a you know a bump up, a lot of times those early folks, you know, actually are happy to, to um, you know, to, to get off the cap table. So I'm going through one of those right now. But again, you know, in many cases, that um, you know that that person doesn't have an obligation to sell. So if you had a co-founder that had fifty percent of the business and decided to leave, and it was all vested, you know, it's a negotiation, and you don't know where that's going to land. So you definitely put yourself and your company um, in jeopardy by not setting it up correctly from the, the get-go. But there are some remedies going forward
2: that's really really helpful um, I want to ask the the pre plant question uh, which you mentioned a lawyer in the question before so this goes into you know the importance of surrounding founders with resources they need to thrive and certainly professional staff is, is part of that um, one how important is is it in your opinion finding that, uh the the law help the accounting help to get you set up properly it's kind of a softball question but
1: i mean 100 percent yes and anyone who knows me knows that i'm like really cheap and don't like spending on things like that and so the good news is um you know there's a massive industry of incredible lawyers that will defer costs that have great packages Um, that are really looking out for early stage startup success because they're playing the long game, right, where they're not, you know, making much money off of uh, these founding companies in the first few rounds. But as, you know, things really progress and you've developed a relationship, that's where um, they really make their money. So find someone that's, you know, really aligned and there's plenty of them. Um, that want to work with you on reasonable terms and then have them, you know, set up your company for success. And most of them have, you know, these great startup packages that include, um, you know, founder agreements and, um, you know, cap table and and all of this. So I definitely think um, it's it's worth it to spend a little bit. But then also, you know, when we say surrounding founders with resources, it's not just like introducing them to an accountant. It's like you've got to find other founder thought partners, right? And so anyone that's built a, a company knows um, that those are your peers are your most valuable uh, mentors, actually, right? Other people that are going through this. Sometimes they're you know a few months ahead of you, a few years ahead of you. Um, but these are people, you know, that you really surround yourself with that can, um, you know, give you best practices of what's going on in the market. So find yourself those thought partners. And that's one of the things that, you know, we try to do at um, at everywhere is really kind of create that ecosystem of trusted people that can share resources. Um, and oftentimes that's just knowledge sharing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I second that. I think it's so important to surround yourself with people who have been through it. I mean, even now, just myself thinking back to where I started and where I am now, I'm, I'm happy to impart some of the things I've learned on founders. And I think that that's one of the best things about being in this ecosystem is that people really are willing to help one another. And, um, I'm going to reiterate what you said a little bit about the, the lawyers and the, the deferred cost because I did not know that. And I had initially, um, agreed on a contract with an attorney and they never offered me anything of the sort. And then um, a couple months later, I was talking to another founder and they were like, oh yeah, so your attorney deferred the costs. And I was I was like, what? What are you talking about? What attorney would defer costs, right? And uh, yes, that is common practice. Definitely find an attorney that will do that. I ended up switching attorneys and I did go to a firm that did defer our costs and you know I think that legal fees is one of the most expensive things for any startup and because of that I'm I'm really cheap about that stuff too and because of that you don't want to spend your money on that and so you end up doing things like from a legal perspective that don't Suit you in the future, and so if you can find a firm that's willing to partner with you and defer those fees, you can get things done right in the beginning, and then essentially, you know, they will collect on those fees when you raise a round of funding or you reach a certain milestone, and um, and that way you can make sure that when it comes to a larger event like you know funding or or being acquired or having an exit you didn't skimp on the important stuff in the very beginning with attorneys. Um, and, you know, anyone who doesn't know that firms will do that, now you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that you find a, a partner that you can work with. And, and essentially, if this is someone that is just there to get the fees at the beginning, that is not a partner that is um, in it for the long term or is aligned with you. Um, And so the best law firms, you know, and if anyone needs recommendations, they can feel free to, you know, ping me or we can put it in the show notes. Um, Just a whole list of of wonderful folks that it's not just about deferring, but they have sensible packages, right? And these people, again, want to partner with you because they see the long-term success of your business. Um, And, you know, that can be, that can be really amazing. Like I've literally had companies that I've introduced to, to firms that are now, you know, public companies, right? And so imagine, um, you know, that type of relationship. So yeah, at the beginning, they weren't making much, but, you know, it's, it's kind of worked out for those firms. And so you really want to find partners that um, really share your vision, not just are transactional.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I, I agree. Um, so I kind of want to pivot a little bit because I, as we kind of tie all of this up. Um, we started out the conversation talking about some qualities and founders and specifically you talked about, um, resilience. And I always love hearing stories, uh, about founders or businesses that overcome obstacles because I think this journey can be really difficult sometimes. And there are a lot of ups and downs and it, it's very, um, Prom- the, the success stories are always the ones that we see, right? We don't always hear about the the struggles and you can kind of feel a little bit isolated when you go through them. And so I would love to, to hear a story of a time when a startup that you invested in kind of had significant challenges and, and how they overcame that and really how you helped them through that, because I want to make sure that we highlight the struggle, but also that we work through how people can overcome that and how you can keep going when you are in those low moments.
1: Yeah, well, um, lots of examples from my portfolio, but, um, you know, one of them that comes to mind is a company that um, is a leader in their space now, but I can tell you in the early days ran out of money twice. Um, And not really because they were doing much wrong, but because the sales cycles are in the fintech space and they sell into Um, other financial service um, organizations, the fintech space is just really hard, right? You've got a lot of headwinds in terms of regulatory, in terms of crazy sales cycles. So seriously, their sales cycles in the early years could be three years. And so, you know, if you talk about raising money for 18 months, 24 months, what about, uh, you know, a a sales cycle that's, or, you know, having to raise for three years? Like most investors are not going to give you money for that or admit that that's a thing, but that is a thing. So I love these founders that um, literally they ran out of money and their team was like, okay, we're going to keep on doing this. We so believe in the mission. So it was so impressive about that is that, um, you know, not just the founders, but their founding team all decided just to not take, you know, a paycheck and, you know, go and, and keep on, you know, keep on pressing it. Um, this company is now a unicorn and, and a leader in their space. Um, but they had many dark moments around, um, you know, th- this one thing. So, you know, lots of examples there um, about uh, overcoming challenges. But I think that, you know, this is one I see quite a bit, which is underestimating how long it takes to close customers on the B two B side and to really get traction, um, and ultimately not be able to, um, you know, fund a big operation and have to scale down. They had to, you know. They had to lay off people or people had to, you know, essentially had to leave um, and they had to kind of go back to, you know, a bare bones team. So I think we're seeing a lot of that in this market as the market's contracting um, and everyone's kind of, um, you know, figuring out the new normal. Um, and so that, that's a story that I love because they were able to get really lean, come together as a team. And ultimately, you know, I think this company's um, in a great position now.
0: I love that. And I also think it speaks to making sure that you choose the right uh, co-founders because, you know, in those dark moments, right, if you have someone that's like, no, I'm not going to eliminate my salary or, you know, the the ones that don't have that commitment to keep going. I mean, that's such a that's such an amazing story to hear, especially that you said that the outcome is like they're a unicorn now. Right. Because um, these journeys are not linear and um there are you know there you have to commit to the tough times and you know again like the partnership between a, a founder a founding team and an invest, investor is like a marriage but even more so the the founder co-founder relationship is like a marriage i have a very strong marriage with my co-founder <laughs> um you know her and i are are very much on the same page and um you know, even we've had our, our disagreements and struggles. So it's so critically important to make sure you have the right people. On
2: I'm just going to tell you a very quick, quick story, personal story. My son um, is a budding entrepreneur, uh, has his own, had his own music booking agency, uh, was going to merge with another indie. Um, and the other founder, the other owner had a setback and he's like, His first reaction, second reaction, third reaction was, I'm out of here. And I said, and you know, my son was upset. And I said, No, he just did you the biggest favor ever. He showed you who he was at a time when things were not good. He doesn't have the resilience that you need because nothing goes linear. (laughs) So he's just not prepared for it. So you should thank him for letting him for, for having him show you who he was really early.
1: 100%. Yeah. I think that's a great, a great story. And we see that quite a bit, you know, where it turns out one person isn't set up, you know, for the entrepreneurial journey and that's totally Totally fine. fine. I mean, it's not, yeah, it's, you have to figure out, you know, who you are and, and, you know, what your risk tolerance is, what your lifestyle expectations are. And and I think it's fine.
0: Yeah. It's not for everyone. everyone. And it's best that you (laughs) find out in the early days. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jenny. We I think we have learned so much in this time, um, and I hope that these these lessons will be valuable for the founders that listen. You know, I think that one of the main things that you know everyone has to commit to being a founder is that it's con- consistent and constant learning. And I know I learned things from this conversation. Um, one question that we like to ask all of our guests is. Um, what are you reading, watching, or, or listening to right now that's giving you inspiration or maybe helping you just disconnect and get away
1: from it all? <laughs> um, I actually just read Tony Fidel's new book called Build, a relatively new book. Um, mm-hmm. So Tony Fidel created the iPad, uh, iPod, iPhone, Nest, you know, kind of a, a, a 30-year Silicon Valley um, uh, guy. And um, he wrote this book. Um, It's kind of has the ethos of like mentor in a box. And so um, he talks about kind of his stories, personal stories, practical advice and insights, um, you know, from people that he's worked with. It's a really fun read. It's not, um, you know, it's not very long, but it just like, I don't know, I just thought it was very inspirational for me. Um, and this year I got to meet Tony. He came, um, I teach uh, at Cornell and he came um, and met my students. So it was really fun to kind of read the book and fill in some of the dots from, from his experiences, you know, at Apple, et cetera.
0: I love that. Wonderful. I'm going to put it on on my list.
2: Um, so Jenny, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I advise every founder to follow her on. Is it Twitter? Is it X? I don't know, but it's worth uh, <laughs> worth being there um, or, or finding her on other channels. It's been a lot of good conversations. Thanks so much for having me.
1: It was super fun. Excellent. Thank you.